The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, good morning, Heritage. How are you guys doing today? All right, excellent, excellent. Hey, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. For those of you who may not know, you maybe you're new or visiting, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at Heritage, and it's my privilege, my joy, to bring to you the Word of God this morning and um, to share with you out of the Scriptures. Jeff and Bronwyn are recovering from a, uh, a long trip to an Acts 29 convention, which is a church planting network that we're associated with, where we're, we're planting, involved in planting churches all throughout the world, uh, and specifically a portion of our uh, everything that's given here at Heritage goes to planting churches specifically here in the Northwest. And for those of you who are here for that, um, for the, the sort of annual report day where Jeff went over everything that our church is involved in, you got to see some of those names of people who, because of the work at Heritage, because of the generosity at Heritage, are bringing the gospel to different communities throughout the Northwest. So that's a, that's a wonderful thing. Hey, before we dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 16, let's go to the Lord with our hearts uh, right now. So, Father, we recognize, again, that um, left to our own devices and our own logic, Lord, we will keep doing the same things that we have always done. And um, oftentimes in our culture, in our even way of growing and understanding the world around us. It is the blind leading the blind. We, we look around for what we think is the best example for how to live and for what you've called us to. Um, and, and, and the people that we're looking to are often doing the same. So God, work your truth, which is eternal, into our hearts. Through the word this morning, God, establish us in the truth. Even right now, just begin tilling up the soil of our hearts so that the implanted word of truth might grow in us and bear fruit for your glory. That your word would be changing in us the way that we we think and see the world around us. God, have your way in us. We, We give you permission to not just be Savior, as though you needed permission for this, but to be Lord as well today. To teach and instruct us, to bring us again under the authority of your eternal truth. And we ask this in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. Well, what a confusing time we live in. I mean, we live in a culture where the roles of each gender are being blurred in our society. Now, the crazy thing is that people that have lived in the experience of clear gender roles are slowly fading away in influence in society. You see, our kids that are growing up in the present day have no experience of what it looks like for men to be men or men to be masculine and for women to be feminine. For them, the concept of gender roles or gender identity is merely a social construct. 
It's not a created fact or a genetic reality. It is something that society has put together to give males or females purpose in the world. Now, our kids are growing up with the understanding that that is a, a true fact, that that is a reality, that there is no such thing as gender. Interestingly enough, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. Throughout history, there's been a battle between God's intention for creating the world the way that he wants to, his intention for creation, and the creation in rebellion against God's design. We see this battle take place all throughout the scriptures, and and one place in particular stands out that it really exemplifies this in the scriptures, and that is the city of Corinth. So if you're in 1 Corinthians, we're going to be in chapter 16. We'll pick it up in verses 13 through 16. But I want to give you a little background here. Alien, a fitting name, the late Greek writer, tells us that if ever a Corinthian was shown upon the stage in a Greek play, he was shown as a drunk. Matter of fact, the very name Corinth was synonymous with debauchery. And there was one source of evil in the city that was known all over the civilized world. Above the isthmus, which was this water passageway, towered the hill of the Acropolis. And on it stood the great temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Now to that, to that temple were attached over a thousand prostitutes. They were priestesses and sacred prostitutes that in the evenings they descended down from this hill up above the city, from this high place, down into the streets of Corinth where they would ply their trade in exchange for offerings for financial uh, giving to the temple of Aphrodite. Matter of fact, this became such a a well-known fact that there was this Greek proverb that said, it's not every man who can afford a journey to Corinth. It was the Las Vegas of its day. And in addition to these more crude sins, there flourished far more incomprehensible vices, which had come in with the traders and the sailors from the ends of the earth, until Corinth became not only a synonym for wealth and luxury, drunkenness and debauchery, but also a synonym for just plain old filth. As a result, Corinth was laden with problems. And the church that was in there was full of those same problems. The main problem at Corinth was the depth to which the sinful culture had penetrated their thinking. There was a blending of of many values in the church because the people that comprised the church brought their values with them into the church. Corinth itself was deeply influenced by female deity figures. So when Paul calls out the church for its heirs, he also calls the men there to take their God-given role to lead well. This morning, as we are taking a look at one specific passage, we're going to see where Paul pushes against the heavily feminized culture of Corinth 
and says some things that should strike us at the heart. So let's pick it up. Verse 13 of chapter 16, 1 Corinthians. This is what he says. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanas, that they were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. Did you catch that phrase? The one that should offend us? Act like men. (laughs) Isn't that weird to hear that phrase? It's the kind of phrase that, you know, if you were at a soccer game and there's a soccer dad on the sidelines, his kid falls down on the field, starts crying, and you hear him shout from the sidelines, Act like a man! You'd be like, oh, he's a bad dad. <laughs> he should be doing that. That's, that's, that's not okay. I mean, it's strange in our culture. We, we just aren't even supposed to talk like that anymore, are we? You don't hear that kind of language anymore because in the current societal temperament, unless you're going to put out some sort of trigger warning in advance, this kind of language is considered sexist. But... Paul says it right here, nonetheless. So what does that mean? Act like men. What does that mean? I mean, how do we learn to act like men? Do we we learn this from some specific culture? I mean, is, is he referring to the culture of his day, of the Roman culture? where men treated women like property and the, and the common use for legitimate wives was to bear legitimate children, to bear the family name, and you had control of them even unto death if you killed your wife. I mean, she was your property. Is that where we define manhood? Did Paul mean to be brutish and treat your family like property? Is that what he's saying? Or is it determined by some other culture? Maybe, maybe perhaps the Vikings. Maybe what Paul is saying right here is grow a beard and burn down villages. Or maybe maybe it's the Irish. He's like, okay, act like men. Drink beer and punch each other. Or maybe it's the early 1900s American male. Work hard. Be self-reliant. Never need anybody. Grin and bear it. Do your duty. Maybe that's what he's saying. How how do we define manhood? How do we even begin to understand Paul's admonition to act like men? I don't know about you, but it's really interesting. I've been a man my whole life. (laughs) And it wasn't until I was like 32 years old that I really even ever ask the question, how do you know when you're a man? I mean, is it, is it 16 when you can drive? Is it, 
Is it 18 when you can vote and buy a lottery ticket? Is it 21 when you drink? Or is it when you, is, was it when you graduate high school? Or is it when you graduate college? Is it when you're married and you have kids? The answer to the, those questions, none of those, right? Because we know lots of people who are 50-year-old boys. They're boys that can shave. <laughs> right? But they never grew up. They never became men. They never, they never settled into their God-given role to be men. So let's dive into this together. Let's, let's see what's here. Now the first thing that we need to take into account as we try to sort this out is the command to act like men is given, number one, if you're taking notes, in contrast to the culture. In contrast to the culture. It's interesting to note here that the culture of Corinth, especially in matters of spirituality, lent itself to believing that women should be dominant in matters of spirituality. The pagan temple Aphrodite was only one example of the roles that women played in matters of faith and worship. So, the 5th century B.C. playwright Euripides explains the connection between women and prophecy through one of his female characters in Greek culture. He says this in one of his plays. This is one of his female characters who's, who's speaking. And in the matters concerning the gods, for I consider these matters to be most important, we women have the greatest share. For in the temple of Apollo... Women prophesy the thoughts of Apollo. And around Adonis' holy foundations by the sacred oak, it is the female sex which conveys the thoughts of Zeus to any Greek who seeks them. Also, as to those rituals which are performed for the fates and the nameless goddesses, it is not holy for men to participate in them. All of them flourish in the hands of women. This is how the case for women stands in their dealings with the gods. So the speaker here, the, this character in the play, is defending herself against detractors by pointing out the role of women as prophetic priests and oracles for the gods at Delphi and Dodona. So we can see here that women were likely the voice of the gods in Greek culture to the society. For those of you who are Bible students, you may remember earlier in the book of Corinthians how that Paul warns the church not to let female prophetesses dominate their meetings. Now, many commentators feel that this cultural dynamic of, of females being the strong leaders spiritually is what Paul is combating there. This is why he wrote these things. Unfortunately, that has been reread through the eyes of the present-day culture to mean that Paul was a sexist pig who was actually against females, when really he was likely combating the cultural dynamic that allowed men to abdicate their responsibility before God, to spiritually lead their own homes, and to lead within the church of God. So in contrast to the culture of Paul's day, God uses Paul to call the men of that culture to act like men. 
to lead. To not sit passively by in the church and let the women do everything. Paul calls the men to act like they were created to act, to act like men. Now, in addition to Paul's admonition to act like men, his admonition comes to us in contrast, not only to the culture, but in contrast to the fall. As the Bible opens, it gives us a brief snapshot of the intentions of God in creation. One of the most telling passages on creation and the intention of man and his place in creation is found in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. First chapter of the Bible, verses 26 and 28. You've probably heard it if you've been around church any amount of time at all. You've probably heard it numerous times. But let's take a look at it again. Chapter 1, verse 26, on the sixth day of creation, as God is wrapping up his creation of the world, he comes to the creation of man, his crowning achievement. And he says this. You get this conversation between the Trinity. Then God said, verse 26, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So from this passage in the Bible, we get a little snapshot of God's intention in creating mankind in the first place. The very first thing that we learn is that man was to be a representation Man was to be a representation. Here we're told that the purpose in creating mankind is that both male and female counterparts would bear God's image and likeness. You see, through creation and through making mankind male and female and making them in the image of God, God is accentuating aspects of his nature and character through the definite sexes. That is to say, when a man lives in his distinct maleness or masculinity, he reflects something about God. And when a woman lives out her distinct femininity, her femaleness, she also reflects something unique and distinct about God as well. That the man in his strength and his responsibility, in his strong ties to honor, his work ethic and what he does, his creative ability, that man is reflecting an aspect that God wants to accentuate about himself. And vice versa, when a woman 
is feminine and nurturing and living out the role of a woman. When she finds her place in creation in that way, she reflects aspects of God's character and nature that she was created to reflect. Her capacity to nurture and to love, to care for, her desire to give life to others. These are all attributes of, of who God is, and he is accentuating them through the separate sexes, through the masculine and through the feminine, through the male and through the female. And man was created to bear the image of God. Man was to be a representation of the one who made him. So man was, give, was to be a representation. But man was also given a responsibility. In verses 26 and verse 28, it says this. It says that he's to have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill up the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In, in a matter of three verses, he repeats himself twice. That tells us it's important, right? Man is given a responsibility. Verse 26 and 28 tell us that God gave mankind a mission to accomplish. Adam was given the task of filling up the whole earth and, and replicating the garden that he was placed in. As you follow the story along through the book of Genesis, you find out that, that God created Adam outside of the Garden of Eden in a place where it was wild and untamed. It was just natural creation, if you will, in the wilderness, in the bush. Then God takes him from that place and creates a garden where things are manicured and cared for by the Lord. Order is brought out of the chaos. And he takes the man and he puts him in that place. And he says, now, what I've done here, you do everywhere. Fill up the earth. Bring order from the chaos. Take my little mini kingdom, my garden kingdom here, and begin to build it out and spread it out until it fills up the whole earth. That's what I've given you to do. He's been given a responsibility. There is work to do for man. They're called to fill up the earth with the representation of God's image and to partner with God in making the whole planet his garden kingdom. So man was to be a representation. Man was given then a responsibility. And thirdly, man was given a relationship. Now, absolutely, God gave Eve as a partner to Adam in this. There's no doubt about that. She was given as a help that was meet or, or fit for Adam. Again, we don't have time right now, but if you carry on through the story, what you find out is Adam is in the garden, and he's there in that place, and, and, um, and God says, hey, I, I've got some work for us to do. So here's what we're going to do, Adam. I'll tell you what. Today, we're going to name the animals, okay? And, and this, is, this is the job for today. Adam's like, okay, all right. So God causes all the animals to come before Adam. 
And so he's, you know, he's looking at one. He's like, he's big and got out of his trunk. And it's an elephant. So you've got Mr. Elephant and Mrs. Elephant. Next. Giraffe. Mr. Giraffe and Mrs. Giraffe. Okay. Next. What did you do here, God? You got like leftover parts? Here you Okay. Mr. Duckbill Platypus and Mrs. Duckbill Platypus. Right? And all day long, this carries on. He's, he's, he's giving names to everything that's been made. But, but what he begins to realize is something that the Bible tells us God saw beforehand. It was not good that man should dwell alone. He needed to have somebody with him. He was made for relationship, not just with God, but with others. And so as Adam is there, the, the story ends on this sort of sad note in that little section where Adam looks around at the end of the day and he says, but there was not found a helper that was fit or suitable for him. He realizes he has a longing for companionship. So God causes asleep to fall upon Adam and he creates Eve when he wakes up he goes oh she is perfect I mean I was eyeballing gorillas all day (laughs) hairy orangutans and she's got bones like I got bones she's got flesh like I've got flesh this is perfect right he sees she completes the picture a helper that is suitable for me. Now, that's a given. But both Adam and Eve were to live in relationship or loving dependence, not just on one another, but upon God as well. We see this dependence upon God in relationship being lived out before the fall in that God and Adam Name the animals together. God is the one who brings the animals, gives him the job to do. There's a partnership that's there. Adam is dependent upon the Lord to to give him a a daily mission. There's this language that like God would walk with them in the cool of the day. Like there was this custom where they would like visit together. And they lived in fellowship and dependence upon one another. God was dependent upon Adam, or excuse me, Adam was dependent upon God to bring him Eve. Adam immediately knew that that all the provision that was necessary for life had come from God. That the tree of life itself was from God. That the boundaries of don't touch this, don't eat this, that was from God. There was a partnership and a dependence upon God that Adam and Eve were created into. They recognized God is the garden maker. He is the tree of life giver. He is the food provider. And all of this points to the fact that Adam lives in the awareness that he is deeply dependent upon God. So, so then what happens? What happens next? We, we, we know the story, right? Sin happens next. Rebellion happens next. The fall happens next. When Adam sinned, he failed to protect his bride from the serpent. And he became a partner with her in sin. He failed to protect the garden that he was given stewardship of. And instead, the whole earth, instead of being filled with God's kingdom, is now filled with brokenness. 
It's irreparably broken. The relationship with his wife is broken. His relationship with God is broken. And from that time forward, man has had a tendency to follow in the footsteps of their father, Adam. Man has had a tendency to live passively, to abdicate their responsibility. And the daughters of Eve, they've learned to fear the sons of Adam. They've learned to fear man's weakness. And and often, women feel, if I don't lead, who will? If I'm not the spiritually strong one, if I'm not the one who who really steps it up, then then who will fill that vacuum? Because I know he's not going to. I'm afraid of him. Either that, or they believe because of being hurt by men, because of poor leadership from men, that they should be afraid of the leadership that men provide. And as a result, Adam and Eve and their sons and daughters throughout the ages run from responsibility and run from one another. And the lie is perpetuated. So in contrast then to the natural default and sinful settings of men, in contrast to the fall, Paul tells the Corinthian men, act like men. You were created for a purpose. God gave you a job to do. Act like the men you were created to be. I mean, notice even the the military terminology that he uses here. He says, be vigilant, back in 1 Corinthians 16. Be vigilant. Be watchful. Why? Why do the Corinthian men need to be watchful? Because the same serpent that was in the garden was present in that day as well. Roaring or walking about like a roaring lion, looking for somebody to devour, that same enemy is out to destroy what God wants to create. So he says, look out for the enemy, just like you, had, you should have been looking out in the garden. Look out, be watchful. Then he says, stand firm. What does that mean? It's don't retreat. Don't do what you did in the garden. Okay? Don't run from responsibility. Don't retreat and fall back from this. Stand your ground. Be like the acorn. Be a nut who refuses to give ground until you've got the strength of an oak tree. Stand firm, he says. Then he says, act like men. Not like you did in the garden when you failed to step up and do what God had called you to. Be the man I created you to be. Protect, provide, care for, shepherd, nurture. It's what you were made to do. 
Act like the man that God has created you to be. Then he says, be strong. Now, we're not talking about physical strength here. I mean, listen, you might be a 98-pound stick bug, right, of a man. Can't grow any facial hair. You you know, your voice is squeaky. Puberty came in your mid-20s. But you can still be a man. We're not talking about, like, bravado and machismo. We're not talking about, you know, all these things that the world equates with manhood. Which, by the way, there's some confusion in the church, too, isn't there? What we're talking about is taking and bearing the responsibility that God has given you to lead, to protect, to provide. So he says, be strong. It's not about physical strength. It's about the kind of grit that does not back down. That says, this is the truth. And this is where I'm planted. This is where I stand. And I can do nothing else. Come hell or high water, doesn't matter. I am grounded right here in what is true. This is what God has given me to do. And I won't move from it. Be strong. So we see then this call to act like men is in contrast to the culture of Corinth. And it's in contrast to the natural settings of the fall, of how the fall has affected. God is calling us backward, right? To before the fall, to the creation restored. He's calling us back to something better and bigger and stronger. But it's not only in contrast to the culture and to the fall, but it's in contrast to preference. To preference. I mean, is anything different today? When you think about the church, what do you think? Do you think that the church is more masculine or more feminine? I I think we have to say that there are some highly feminine aspects to the church, don't we? That's not to say that, you know, we shouldn't value what women bring to the table. We absolutely should in every way. We need that. We're incomplete without it as men. But God has called men to lead. He has called them to take the place he has created them to live out. It's interesting. Pew Research has found that on average, Christian congregants across the world skew about 53% female and 46% male. Now, in the U.S., surveys show a split that's even wider. That is 61% women and 39% men. 61% women, 39% men. Now, this... Gap occurs in every age category and is thus not due to the fact that women live longer than men. It's in every age category that we see this. In sheer numbers, this is what that means. On any given Sunday in America, there are 13 million, 13 million more women in church than men. Now in a few Christian churches, the ratio of women and men is close to equal. In others, it's a yawning 10 to 1 in certain congregations. Now, 
The gender disparity is greater in smaller, older, rural, and more liberal mainline churches, and less, it's closer, in larger, urban, more conservative, and non-denominational churches. But it shows up in every country, amongst Protestants and Catholics, doesn't matter, and it bypasses no denomination with the exception of maybe Eastern and Greek Orthodox. Only 2% of Christian congregations in the U.S. do not have a gender gap. Did you hear that? Only 2%, only 2% of Christian congregations in the U.S. do not have a gender gap. The men are absent. Now, men are not only less likely to attend church, they're also less likely to participate in their faith in other ways. According to Pew Research, Christian women are 7% more likely than men to say religion is important to them. And a guy named David Murrow records in his book, Why Men Hate Going to Church, research conducted by George Barna that found out that women are far more likely to be involved with their church and faith on nearly every level It looks like this, as a matter of fact. Check out these statistics. 57% women are 57% more likely to participate in adult Sunday school. 56% more likely to hold a leadership position at a church, not including the role of pastor. They're 54% more likely to participate in a small group. 46% more likely to disciple others. 39% more likely to have a devotional time or quiet time. 33% more likely to volunteer for a church. 29% more likely to read their Bible. 29% more likely to share their faith with others. 23% more likely to donate to a church. And 16% more likely to pray. Barna summed up his findings by saying this. Women are the backbone of the Christian congregations in America. And and really, the church has made that easy for men. Hasn't it? Let me think about it. Think about the average church in our community. Now, I'm not here to just beat up on church. I love the church. You've you got to hear me on this. I love God's people. I love the church. But if you were to visit other congregations throughout the valley, would it feel more like going to a place to worship an almighty God, or does it feel more like going to your grandma's house? What do you think? Silk flowers everywhere. Quilted banners on the wall. Even kind of smells like grandma's house in some places. Musty and dusty. And not, not only that, not just decor. But think about the way that preaching shapes a church culture. We, somewhere along the way, we switch from, from preaching just about a kingdom that we get to participate in, that God has called us to live as ambassadors for this kingdom that we live in right now, we switch from that to a a, a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, I'm all for having a personal relationship with Jesus. I'm not against that. Email Jeff if that's what you think. (laughs) But I will say this. When I hang out with a a friend, another male buddy of mine, I would never ever describe 
our time together is I have a personal relationship with Sam. I just wouldn't say that. For many, many obvious reasons. Right? Okay, so when we even talk about the way that we frame how it is that we relate to God, sometimes, actually, I think, does disservice to how men react to it on an initial basis. And then on top of that, let's, I don't want to go there, but let's talk about it. What about worship? How many worship songs sound more like a boy crush that some girl has, you know, I want to date Jesus? Like boyfriend songs. So think about this from the perspective of a man. If you're sitting in the congregation and, 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 and all of a sudden a lyric comes up that says, you know, um, my relationship with Jesus is like getting a sloppy wet kiss, right? And there's a song that's out there that's like that. And I actually like the song. But, but as guys are sitting there, they're like, okay, so is, is this how I relate to Jesus? I mean, am I supposed to? Okay, so now I've got two options, right? The first option is I sing this insincerely. I can sing this lyric, but I, it's hard for me to own it. Because if, this is not something, this is not a way I would ever relate to another man. Right? So I have to sing it now insincerely. Because this is not, I would never say this to one of my friends. Or, you don't sing. You sit there, you stuff your hands in your pocket, you jingle your keys and your change, you wait for the song to be over and hope that there's like an anthem on the back end of it. You know, here's another thing. When, when, when in congregations it skews 61% female and 39% male, who do you think the pastor is going to preach to? To the larger audience, right? And he's going to talk about feelings and emotions and healing from your past hurts. And women are like, see, I knew it. My husband is so unspiritual. He doesn't feel anything. They go home, car ride after church. They're driving in the car. And wasn't that a moving service today? Wasn't that beautiful? Husband's like, yeah, it was, that was good. It was good. What? How come you weren't crying and broken like me? How come you don't feel anything? What's wrong with you? He's like, I... I feel angry right now. <laughs> I feel defensive. Does that count? Now listen, I, I don't want to go too far with this to remove the fact that we do really relate to God personally. Okay? And I don't want to take away from the fact that when we sing songs about our love for Jesus, we can sing them sincerely even when the, the, the lyrics push against some of our natural bent as men. We can sing about our love to Jesus freely. What I'm saying is there is a disconnect within the church 
between the command of God to act like men and the reality of how that's being lived out as a community. And I think a lot of men feel like, my wife is always going to be more spiritual than me because I don't cry during worship. My wife is always going to be more spiritual than than me because I don't respond in the same way she does to the the truths of God's word. Man, you called me to a kingdom and to honor, and I'm like, I'm all in. But ask me to like be broken and cry, that's probably not going to be my first go-to thing. And if it's Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday that I hear at some point guys come in and they just tune out. They're physically present and spiritually bankrupt. The church has made it easy in some ways for men to not lead. So we see that the Paul's command here to act like men stands in contrast to the culture of the time, stands in contrast to the fall, and stands in contrast to the preference of the church even today. But it also stands in fulfillment of the gospel. In fulfillment of the gospel. Listen, men. When God saved men, he called them to restoration. If you're taking notes, men, you should be taking notes. Write this down. When God saved men, he called them to restoration. Our rightful identity as men, the way that we have been made and designed by God, he is calling us back to that. I've been wrestling with how do, I, how do I boil down a good definition of manhood? What is that? How do we quantify that? You know, if it's got too many qualifications, we lose the big picture. How do I narrow that down just a little bit? And here's, here's what I've come up with. I hope it works for you. If not, uh, email Jeff. Manhood equals character plus responsibility. So character is, is things like honor, integrity, honesty, trustworthiness. These are all the things that are part of, of, of being a man, okay? And then the other side of that is responsibility. Nobody has to tell a man, hey, you should get up and go to church. Why? Because the man goes, that's, that's my responsibility, Hey, when I stand before Jesus, I'm not going to stand behind my wife and go, well, she was really holy. I have to stand before the Lord, give an account for my own heart, my own life. That is my responsibility, and I am engaged in that responsibility. It's mine to own. You don't have to tell me to go to church. I'm the one rallying my family. I'm the one saying, hey, but this is important. We worship Jesus. We follow Jesus. We come together as a family and walk with Jesus. Follow him with all of our hearts. This is our job. Nobody has to tell me to wipe my butt or change my clothes or not smell like a heathen. 
Why? Because I'm a man. Listen, men don't get married to have a mom. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> That'll be a discussion on the way home. <laughs> Listen. Men get married because they're willing to take on the responsibility of a family. Okay? So character, integrity, trustworthiness, honor, all these things that are built in, plus responsibility. I'm responsible for myself, and then when I take care of my responsibilities... I, I say I'm also responsible for others. And that means if I'm a single guy, I, my responsibility is towards my family of origin and then the church of Jesus Christ. And I come into this place. And when I come in, I'm not just going, okay, well, what's somebody going to give me like a little kid? I'm here to get. No, a man says, I'm here to give. This is a place where I serve God's people. So I'm looking for conversations. I'm looking for ways to connect. I'm looking for who I can encourage or who I can practically help. I'm here giving to the body of Christ because that is my role as a man to engage with that responsibility and fill up the earth with God's kingdom. I'm doing my part. And if you are married, then you go, I'm responsible for these people. What went down with Eve? Who bore the consequence for that sin? Eve actually sinned first, didn't she? Wasn't she the first one to take a bite? Whose fault was it, though? That's right, men. You are responsible for your families before God. You are responsible before God for what goes down in your home. And God has called us as men to be to take that responsibility, to own every aspect of it and say, the spiritual temperament of my home is my responsibility. I can't lay all of that. I can't give that responsibility to my wife. It falls on my shoulders. I own that. So when God saved men, he called them to restoration of our rightful identity as men. He called them to manhood, true manhood. Not only that, but he called them to a kingdom. Interesting, there's a 13th century pope. His name was Frederick II of Germany. He wanted to know the language of God, right? He, wanted, he, was, he thought, okay, well, I wonder what language we would speak if nobody ever gave us instruction to speak German or French or Canadian or whatever, right? Canadian. It's the same as English, okay. Um, anyway. Uh, so he wanted to know, what, what is the language of God? And so he devised this experiment. In those days, you know, lots of women would die in childbirth. And as a result, uh, their infants were cared for by wet nurses in orphanages. And so he, he came up with this experiment. He instructed the nurses that only their basic needs were to be met with food, water, and diaper changes, but they were not allowed to talk to, to cuddle, or to play with, or interact with the babies in any way, shape, or form. Okay? One monk commenting on the, the 20 infants that were designated for this experiment 
noted that all 20 of the infants were dead within a few weeks. You know why? Because we're made for connection. We're made for connection. I mean, guys, we're made to be a part of something. We're made to be a connected arm in arm with one another. We're, we're made for that. It is the will of God that we connect with each other. You know, it's interesting when you look at cardiovascular disease, um, we think, okay, what are the contributing factors to that? What are the, the risk factors for cardiovascular disease? And um, <clears throat> we, we come up with kind of, you know, the general categories, of like inactivity, okay? If you are inactive, the relative risk there is 1.9. You're 1.9% or 1.9 times more likely to have cardiovascular disease. Hypertension, 2.1 times more higher. Cholesterol, 2.4 times uh, more likely to have cardiovascular disease. Smoking, 2.5 times more likely to have cardiovascular disease. Did you know that they added a new one? Social isolation. I did the same thing in the last service. Social isolation. Social isolation. Did you know that you are 2.8 times more likely to have cardiovascular disease if you are alone? If you're not with, you're not connected to other people. Men, we have been saved unto a community of people that we were created to be a part of. We were created for socialization and togetherness. This is, this is why boys join gangs and men join the military and why there's a Lions Club and motorcycle rides in large groups and a whole host of other things. This is why there's weird things that exist like fantasy football. Which, by the way, is nothing more than Dungeons and Dragons for sports nerds. <laughs> it's true. It's got to be said. Listen. God made us for togetherness. Men, he created you to have a band of brothers, and that band of brothers is in the kingdom of God. It's laboring for the kingdom. It is a part of your call as men. You've been saved into the kingdom of God, and you've been given purpose and direction for your life. And it's found here in God's kingdom. And lastly, when he saved men, he called them unto himself. Listen, there's lots of reasons that people say, I can't follow God. I can't be serious. My wife needs to be more spiritual than me. There's all kinds of excuses that people come up with. Some men say, well, my, my father, he was never present. I don't even really know what it's like to be a man. I, I don't even have a good definition. Where do I even start with that? Well, I'll tell you where you start. You start with knowing that when God call, saved you, he called you unto himself, God is a father. Notice what it says in the Psalms. When my mother and my father have forsaken me, the Lord will take me up. Or how about this one? Psalm 68, verses 4 through 6. That God is a father to the fatherless. In the same way that God the Father affirmed his son at his baptism and on the Mount of Transfiguration, saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. What man in here doesn't want to hear those words from his father? What man in here does not long to hear the affirmation of a father? 
that says, this is my beloved son. I'm so proud of him. I believe in him. I'm so pleased with him. Well, guys, you've been adopted into that family. You've been made sons of God. And he looks at you through the lens of the cross and he says, this also is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He called us unto, unto himself. God is our father. Jesus is our guide. Listen, we learn how to be men by looking at Jesus. We look at the way that he acted and he defines what manhood looks like. It's not this, you know, uh, bravado, macho, like, you know, who can spit the farthest and fart the loudest and, you know, do all this man stuff, that pull out chest hair and run around and grunt and scream. And that, that has nothing to do with manhood. We learn to be a man by looking at Jesus. Here's what the Bible calls Jesus. The Bible calls Jesus the last Adam right? Our problem in humanity is we're always taking our example from the first Adam. We keep looking back. We go like, okay, I've, be passive. Be, be weak. Don't do that. Just run away from conflict and don't engage. And, and then we see the last Adam. We see his mark upon our lives. We see him face his enemies. We see him face the consequence of death. We see him broken and weeping at times and emotional at times and at the same time never at the expense of his masculinity. Because it's not unmasculine to have emotions. He defines what being a man is. Men who are men are emotionally healthy and mature men. They're able to weep like Jesus. They're able to be like David who soaked his bed with tears and then still went out and killed his ten thousands. We have to redefine what courage is. Listen, it requires no courage at all to wear a mask and to be fake. What requires courage is to be honest and vulnerable and to say, hey, this is where I'm hurting. This is where I'm struggling. This is what I'm dealing with. I need prayer. I need brothers around me. I need people in my life that are going to keep me focused the same direction. That's what real masculinity and manhood is. It's the strength to know what your limits are. To live in dependence upon God. We have to redefine what courage looks like. So God is our Father. Jesus is our guide. And the Holy Spirit is our power. Some men will say, I'm afraid. I'm, af I'm afraid I'm going to fail. I'm going I'm to blow it. Listen. Bravery is not the absence of fear. It is the resolve to do what is right in the face of fear that makes you brave. Facing that fear is a part of the call of manhood. When, when the Holy Spirit through Paul says, act like a man, be strong, he is calling us by the Holy Spirit to live in the confidence that God will see us through. You know, Jesus was courageous, faced every fear, didn't he? Did you know that the same spirit that lived in Christ that raised him from the dead 
lives in you, men. He lives in you. So here's my final application, and I'll turn you loose. Paul says something here that is so deep in its meaning. When he calls the Corinthian men, he says, act like men. He is calling them up. He's calling them up. Here's my heart for you men. My role here is going to be changing at Heritage. I've been overseeing the high school ministry and been teaching um, high schoolers. It's been a wonderful season. But I'm uh, moving up into men's ministry now. And it is my heart, it is my goal to call you men up. To engage in this thing called the kingdom of God. To find your rightful place as men, not as macho guys out trying to prove something, but as humble servants of the Most High King. It's my goal to call you men to engage in what God has created you for. One of the ways that you can do that is by signing up for man camp. We'll get a chance to get to know each other. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be looking for men who have a heart to engage. I want to rally us guys. The gals have been doing a fantastic job. They're killing it. We've got to prove that we're worthy of that. We've got great gals. We've got great women in our church. Let's lead them well. Amen? Not only that, but I think that there's a call here for men and women to repent. Maybe as we've been talking about this and you've been thinking about some of the dynamics of your own life, the Holy Spirit is highlighting areas that need to be stepped up, areas where you're weak, areas where you haven't applied yourself. Men. Or areas, ladies, where you've been resisting God's will and refusing to let your man lead. Or maybe it's you young single ladies who are like, no, I just want a boy that can shave. No, you want a man that can lead. Maybe there is a need for repentance today and a need to examine your heart and say, God, i got to change a few things. It's not right the way I've been living. Lastly, there's a call here in this text to depend more on Jesus. Listen, the only way that you can be a real man and live in the purpose for which you were created is to join arm in arm with your Savior and to step onto the battlefield in humble dependence upon Him. All right, you're leading where you go, Jesus. What you command, Jesus, I will follow. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word that instructs us, that gives us vision for the future. God, I pray right now that those people that you've spoken to today, that your words would not be stolen away by the enemy or drowned out by the cares of this world choked out by and burned up by trials 
God, that the seed of your word would be planted in their hearts and that you would create in them fresh life and purpose for the future. For the men that are leading well, God, strengthen them. Make them even stronger. Give them some other guys who need to learn to come alongside of them and come under their wing. For those that have not been leading well, Lord, call them to greatness. Call them to the manhood that you've created them for. For those ladies who've been hurt by abusive men, correct their vision and give them a, a, clear, a clearer understanding of who you really are and what it means to be a man. God, use your word in the lives of your people that you might be glorified. In the name of Jesus, amen. Would you stand?